Welcome to our podcast, Schizophrenia, Three Moms in the Trenches. From the place where schizophrenia and real life collide. East Coast, West Coast, Middle America. With Miriam Feldman, Mindy Greiling, and Randy Kay. Welcome to episode 38. I'm very excited. We're going to flip the tables around or turn the tables around a little bit today. And we're going to be interviewed by a lovely young woman named Savannah, who, how did we meet Savannah on LinkedIn? How did we meet? Yeah, it was LinkedIn. I reached out. You did. Okay. And then we had a, a, a wonderful conversation over Zoom. And Savannah is doing well, wait till you hear. She's doing so much, but I'm so excited to have you are in the UK, correct? I'm in the UK. So it's evening there and it's morning for Mimi and it's kind of medium for Mindy and I'm uh, at the end of my lunch hour. So we're going to get a, an international flavor here today. Today's topic is something that we have touched on this in past episodes, but we haven't spoken at length about the connection between mental illness treatment, mental health, and money. Things like, you know, we talk about the emotional stress of caring for someone with serious mental illness, but we haven't talked about the financial stress and the financial shock, you know, debt. How does your loved one handle or not handle money? How do you get services? Do wealthy people get better support? I know families who have to go broke before they can get support. And this is true in America. And I don't know what's going on in the UK with that. So I was so excited to talk to Savannah, who additionally will bring us the perspective of the daughter of someone with a serious mental illness and the sibling of people who are as well. So I let's get going. Savannah, welcome. I want to introduce you to Miriam Feldman, Mimi over there. Say hi. hi pleasure to meet you. <laughs> and Mindy. Hi, Savannah. Welcome. Thank you so much. <laughs> so let's just start. Tell us a little bit ab about your story. I mean, I have a bio here. I know you're from South Africa. You moved to the UK for university. You started a career as a geologist. And I'm going to share this because I want to hear your mental health issues. So <laughs> an equestrian competition, sales business. You just completed your MBA at Oxford, starting a company in mental health. So that's amazing stuff. Tell us about your lived experience and why you reached out to me and what you'd like to do today. Yeah, great. Thank you so much. That was a great intro. Um, so in terms of my background, as you said, it's actually a stepmother who has mental, um, mental health problems. She's bipolar. And my three of my three eldest stepsisters, um, or my half-sisters, one has schizophrenia um, and another has bipolar. And my youngest sister, who's a full sister, she's severely autistic with a whole host of learning disabilities. Um, what's with quite interesting about how I grew up is my eldest siblings are a lot older than me. So the youngest, the smallest age gap is 18 years. So I was born into a time where a lot of these mental health issues um, were showing up. So their first presentation, which meant for quite a chaotic upbringing. And my youngest sister is five years younger than me. So just as I was sort of finding my feet um, I had a sister who I was expecting and who my parents were expecting to be my partner in crime. Um, and it never really worked out. But I guess 
there's been a long time of my life trying to distance myself from my family. And in the last couple of years, it's really hit home to me that I don't want the distance and I've reconnected. I think my geology career and my um, leaving South Africa to go to the UK was very much about trying to find my feet as an independent person from my family. And now I'm just trying to find my way back. And that way back really is around, you know, starting this company in mental health and doing as much research as I possibly can around the impacts of mental health on family finance and how relationships break down over time. So that's, that's a bit about me and what I'm doing. Wow. There's, there's so much there. So what would you like to know from us? We're open books and, and we've written books, but we're also open books. <laughs> <laughs> I guess um, just to start off with is, you know, just knowing from the three of you, how having a son with a severe mental illness has impacted you and your family financially as a starting point, just, yeah, in terms of financial shocks, in terms of debt, in terms of you know, different financial behaviors and, you know, how, how that has impacted not only, you know, money in the bank, but how it's impacted your relationships. Well, for me, um, you know, I grew up in a very modest family. My father did uh, manual labor. He was not a union member, so he didn't get paid all that well for that. My mother went to work when I was in fifth grade, when he um, temporarily was out of work. So I think of the family I grew up in as really being stretched if we were dealing with my son, Jim, uh, back then. Um, I am in a better situation um, with our family and my husband and some inheritances and so forth. So, so I feel fortunate to be able to um, deal with things like nowhere else will take him. So we bought him a condo. But then uh, that didn't work out. He got into crisis. So we finally had to sell it after paying rent on it for a while without him in it and uh, lost $20,000 in the deal. You know, so for us, we absorbed that. And, but you know, my family back when I was growing up couldn't have done that. So it's a serious thing to have a person with serious mental illness. Yeah, thank you. Does anybody else want to? Yeah, you know, for me, I, I'm uh, an artist, and so and so is my husband. So our finances have never been um, conventional. And I, I had my own business, and um, so it's always been sort of catch as catch can. We were able to get my son into the system on disability quite early because I luckily got some very good advice from somebody. So we were always had the medication and those things covered, which can be a big deal. But um, I know that we're the exception to the rule. You know, mo it hasn't impacted us greatly financially. It certainly costs us tens of thousands of dollars over the years, if not hundreds, but it, it, you know, it hasn't impacted us in that way. The only thing, the one important moment for me was there was a, point where I started looking at and finding really wonderful places to put Nick that I know now if I'd been able to do that early on he would have had a different trajectory there would have been a different outcome in terms of his illness for sure and those places were so unattainable financially you know things that would be 
you know, even if I sold my house and used all that money would only keep him in for a few months anyway. So there, you know, so there was, a, it was Sophie's choice. It was the rest of my family and my other children or Nick with no guarantees. And I think having to make those kind of choices is just wrong. You know, there need to be good facilities that they can go to that are available to a normal person, not just really the ultra rich. Yeah, I think I actually quite identify with that in terms of I think there's a lot of similarities between South Africa, the South African healthcare system and the US healthcare system in terms of, you know, everything that we pay, it has to be out of pocket and very little is subsidized by the state. Mm -hmm. And in terms of my background, I think I come from, you know, quite a, I'm quite lucky in the sense that we as a family were able to absorb a lot of the financial shocks in terms of, you know, institutions one or two members at given points in time affording housing. Um, I think what's quite interesting to me is as much as it is around like the systems and how you provide systems of support, I think there's something else in money which is so linked on a more personal level with it, finance isn't just finance. Finance is a measure of self-worth. It's a measure of independence. It's a measure of freedom. And what I've always found quite interesting, at least from my personal experience is how money is a means of control in a way, and it becomes like this mechanism that can be turned on and off as and when the person who's wielding the power can do it. And I found, I'll give a more tangible example in a minute, but I found this incredibly stressful, not from a financial standpoint, but just from an emotional standpoint. So to kind of give an illustration of that most recently, um, my sister with bipolar, who also has a host of, well, she's got a gambling addiction and a substance use disorder. And she's sort of been in and out of facilities. Um, if she's staying on her meds, she's kind of on an even keel. But I think, you know, we all know how negative the, like, the side effects of medication are. So she's frequently coming off it. And she went through a six month stint in rehab um, early last year and came out of it. And honestly, it was like the best I have ever like seen her. Um, usually I can sort of tell by how her voice, like her vocal patterns, how she's speaking to me on the phone. I kind of have a pretty good sense of where on the levels of extreme she is. And she got her job back, was doing great. And I got a phone call from my dad um, who after multiple kind of manic episodes and depressive episodes, he's now controlling her finances. So she's got a card linked to his. And he said to me, you know, Savannah, how, how do you think she's doing? Um, I was like, wow, I actually think in the last 10 years, this is probably the best I've ever heard her. I think she's doing great. And he was like, well, I think we're about to hit a crisis because I've picked up some really erratic patterns in her spending. And I was like, I really don't think you're right. Um, I usually can tell and I trust my gut in this. Um, but needless to say, in 10 days time, she probably hit the worst rock bottom that I've ever experienced her hitting. Um, so I'm curious in terms of moving away from the family and moving much more into individual behaviors of your sons and kind of the financial behaviors that are linked with, with mental illness. Is there anything or any patterns that you've picked up there? Yes, I can. And let me just uh, give a brief background so you know our financial situation. So I raised my children 
mostly as a single parent because their birth father, who was British, he abandoned the family. He had alcoholism and he abandoned the family when they were like three and six. So my son was six at the time. And so needless to say, there was no child support. And so I was living paycheck to paycheck and I'm really learning a lot about money right now and, you know, ha having the courage to kind of manifest it into my life because my whole life has been like, how can I make do with what I get at Goodwill? And, you know, so it self-esteem is very much tied into money and it can be tied into how creative you are when you don't have money. Like there's a certain pride to doing it yourself and so on. So money is a very loaded issue. I will say for me that uh, the problems were when my son was on my private insurance, what happened when at the time he had 35 days in a psychiatric hospital and he had run out of days and they would no longer accept him because private insurance wouldn't pay any more than that. That I think has changed to an extent. And here in America, we have Medicare, if you have social security and if you have disability. So it's kind of like national health, but only for a select few. And then there's private and it gets very complicated. What we have often said at our local NAMI chapter in Connecticut is, and you don't get help, you don't get help till you go broke. Mm -hmm. And so because we could afford to get a private psychiatrist for a while, we couldn't get him a state psychiatrist. And it wasn't until his fifth hospitalization, when we had run out of days, we had run out of charity, because I went to the nuns for charity at some hospital to pay a weekend stay. And that's when suddenly he it, it kicked into state care and state care was not the same quality. So money-wise, those were our issues. In terms of my son, there's a concept called frozen in time, which is that when they started getting ill emotionally, that's kind of where they are. And I do believe that the more time you are in recovery, the more you can rewire your brain and grow up a little bit. But my son's financial decisions have been very adolescent. And I can tell he's doing better when he asks me for advice and follows it. He's currently on a fixed income on social security disability, and he's actually budgeting his money. That is a rare thing. Uh, if he were, on the other hand, when the, he lived with us for nine years before he went back in the hospital during COVID, and he had worked his way up to full-time employment, got off social security, and couldn't keep money in his pocket could not keep money in his bank account, even stable on medication. He leased a Lexus. He maxed, he did just enough to be like a lot of other, not very sensibly minded young people in America, maxed out the credit card. He met his bills, but he did not make smart financial decisions. And I think part of that is the illness. So I, a sign of impending cycling down is when the finances fall apart. Right mm. now, stable on medication, he is managing his money well. And has a, what we call a representative payee. 
So that's when you have to go through a legal process to get somebody else to manage the money. And for a while, my husband did it. And that just entailed lots of arguments. And I tried to work with Jim before he had the payee. And that entailed lots of arguments. So we just put it over to somebody who could um, you know, hang up the phone if he got belligerent about money that he didn't have that he wanted. Um, but the reason it came to a head was a very shocking thing and emotionally very shocking to us as well. And that was he um, had a credit card left over from college. So it had a really high debt limit. They didn't regulate credit cards back in his day in college. And so he had a debt limit in his credit card of $50,000. He had always money, managed his money responsibly until he fell in with a very emotionally abusive girlfriend who also had a mental illness and a heavy crack user. So she got Jim into crack and Jim is a very generous person. He will give anyone a shirt off his back or anything else. So um, when she wanted money for drugs, and then in with the drug culture and other friends, Jim was paying for everybody's drugs on his credit card. And um, it took them two or three weeks to spend it all. And then he called up his sister, who's a couple years older and lives, doesn't live here in Minnesota, and asked to borrow money. And she was thinking about it, maybe two or three hundred dollars. And he said, Well, that wouldn't do any good. You know, I need a lot more than that. And she he wanted to borrow, I don't know, 10,000 or something. And that would have all gone for drugs. So we had to work on getting a payee. But my husband also, in addition to having the payee, wanted to pay back these credit cards. So this became a big fracture in our marriage. Roger was in, his father had a bill collecting business. So Roger was not, didn't have good ideas about people who didn't pay their bills as he was growing up. So um, he a couple times, not with the $50,000 one, but with other credit cards that Jim had maxed out, he would pay them off. And but then when this $50,000 one came, uh, Roger was thinking, well, we'll have to pay that back in installments. And I'm thinking, we're not paying that one back. You know, we're going to be, he'll just keep draining our bank account. So we had knockdown drag out battles over that discussion. So that was why Jim has a payee. Now he's away from that girlfriend. He's sober. He's doing really well with his new psychiatrist. And um, we're in a whole different place. But that was one of the huge low points of our whole mental health journey. It was yeah, money, money can and that money thing just did us in. Yeah, money can pull a family apart. You asked about emotions. It can totally fracture marriages. It can fracture relationships. It can pull a family apart. I will add that I had to, while my son was in this last hospital stay, I had to take it upon myself to declare him bankrupt because he just, it, you know, wasn't necessarily his fault except for immaturity. But, but until his social security came through, he had to ask me, every month for the money to budget. And it drove a wedge between us. Right. Because exactly. no nearly 40 year old boy, man wants to ask his mother for money. And he really had no choice. Now that he has actual money just going into his account. And yes, my name is on the account too. So I can see what happens. 
but our relationship is so much better because he's not asking me for money. And emotionally, that's a huge difference. There's a certain pride in having your own money, however you get it, and a certain embarrassment, which can lead to a definite wedge when you One don't. One of the uh, beauties of this podcast is we're all in different states. So Randy's in Connecticut, um, Mimi's in Washington state, and I'm in Minnesota. So this bankruptcy idea, I thought Jim would have to declare bankruptcy, but we found out that if you're on SNAP, food stamps, uh, then if you qualify for that, debtors can't come after you. Credit card companies can't touch you if you are that poor. So you have to declare bankruptcy. Mimi, anything? Um, Are we answering your question, Savannah? Yes, very, very well. Thank you. Go ahead, Mimi. Yeah, our um, our situation again is different. Uh, you know, uh, Randy mentioned the stuck in time thing, and we very much are. You know, Nick's thirty six, but from the very beginning of this, you know, he got sick in his late teens. He was diagnosed with schizophrenia at about twenty. But I've managed everything from day one, so he never evolved out of that. So he's thirty six years old, and he still basically is stuck in this place where he only has the money that I give him and he accepts that paradigm for his reality. Now he does talk often about how he wants to do, his latest thing now is he wants to start playing the stock market. And- um, <laughs> Oh no, and, oh um, no. <laughs> At least it's excuse not me. drugs. Yeah. <laughs> I excuse me while I laugh. Oh and it's God. like, I, I always have to, you, you know, I have to, fight to, to make my peace with these things because on the one hand it's a really good sign that he's even aware of a stock market and wanting you know he said mom I want to have a future I want to buy a house I want to do this I want to do that and we had set a goal for him that if when he reached this goal I would buy him a guitar which is something he really wants and now he came to me and he said I don't want the guitar I want you to give me the money and I want to start investing and so what we're going to do is we're going to set something up with his dad and he's going to work with his dad and do it with this minimal amount of money. But, um, you know, we just control it. I'm the payee. I control it. He's, he has a caregiver who comes to give him his meds and he gets his daily money. It's just we've never evolved past that. Hopefully we can and will one day. But right now, it's just like one more thing to deal with. And um, I don't see any upside of starting that at this point. It's not something that we ask for very often. I think it's the points you raise about um, Randy, the frozen in time and also the piece around, you know, investing in stocks. And I've been very interested in this concept of financial literacy and financial education. And one of the things that I'm curious about is, do you feel that financial literacy has a role to play in terms of how people with schizophrenia manage their finances or how people, you know, with other severe mental illnesses manage their finances? Or do you think the financial disorganization or kind of erratic behaviors are truly a symptom of the the illness rather than being something that can be managed effectively. I think they can easily manage their finances with some education. I think from our son is the drug use that puts him off the rails and spending all this money. But when he's um, sober and his meds are working like right now, he's very responsible, spends what He has no more, pays all his bills. He's very diligent about that. And he was before he met this uh, girlfriend as well. So I have great 
faith. We also have something in the United States called ABLE accounts, and that allows, it's a better something life um, and better, anyway, it's a, it's a way that people with serious mental illness who are on benefits and can only have $2,000 in the bank, and if they earn more than that, they lose their benefits, they can instead save up to $10,000 and the goal of that is so they can do what they would do like any of the rest of us, save money for a trip, save money for a down payment on a car. And once they have a car, it doesn't count against their benefits, but they got to get that down payment or ditto for, for a house. So I have great faith um, if they have the chance to um, have them do, as, do very well. I think it's possible, but I think also we need to be honest in terms of your question about financial literacy i mean you know nick grew up going to really good schools and he understood you know finances and all that but i mean this is an illness that attacks reason and diminishes reason diminishes um cognition and so i i don't know that you can teach somebody or educate somebody out of the effects of this you know i think if somebody's doing well and has the financial literacy, yes, but I think all the financial literacy in the world is not going to offset schizophrenia. I would agree and add a little addendum to that from our experience. I think there's two things at play there. One is what we'll call, for lack of a better word, maturity. And there's air quotes. You can see them on YouTube, <laughs> but you can't see them in the podcast. There's maturity, which to me means awareness that you need to learn and willingness to learn. And that goes up and down with where you are in your recovery, whether you're in treatment, so forth. It also has to do with your age a bit. Then mm -hmm. there's education. So I will say for my son, there was a time when he was totally not willing to even accept any education because I know everything, I know everything, you know, and that, that is, adolescence, but it's also magnified to an exponential degree by the illness, especially untreated. So that in treatment and with some maturity, which I think can come with length of treatment, consistency of treatment, in our case, there was a time when my son said, mom, can you teach me about credit cards and help me get one that makes sense? And I'm all about that. Then he, when he didn't feel so confident and mature enough to ask for mommy's advice, he went ahead and co-signed a lease for a coworker because he thought it just was a character reference. And I had to use my conservator status to get him out of that. He was grateful. And then even though we had worked really hard to find him a used car and it was paid off, he went behind our back and started leasing cars because they were cooler. So it, but he did meet the bills. So, and I will say that this bankruptcy hit him at a time where here in Connecticut, you can't just declare bankruptcy. You have to take a class online about bankruptcy. Mm -hmm. And then to finish it, you have to take a class on de debt management. So he was very in a place where he was very receptive to that education, be it because he's in his late thirties or because he had knew he had screwed up, whatever it was, that debt management class was 
awesome. And he asked me to kind of sit behind him when he, as he did it. And he learned a lot. And he said, I'm supposed to save 10% of my income. I didn't know that. If I want to open my restaurant someday, I better start saving. So here you have a pipe dream and you have something that education taught him. And I see his bank account and he is managing it. So the education did help, but without being receptive to education, it's in one ear, out the other, or worse, causing another fight. And I think age that you mentioned is a big factor because Jim um, Savannah is 44. So he's got a lot more years on him than Mimi's Nick. So don't give up hope, Mimi. Listen, I don't have a problem with the way it is right now. You know, it's, um, it's under control. He understands this is the money he gets, this is what he can do. I'm just hoping that, uh, you know, him moving out of this sort of teenage phase of finances would indicate improvement and, and you know, healing. Um, it's actually much more manageable right now than it might've been, you know, um, but it would be an indication of him doing better and wanting more if we could move out of it. This is true. Mm-hmm. Boundaries are our friends. My son does have, when he, when he got hospitalized this last time, I took it upon myself as we all do to clean his room because that's what moms can do. So his room- We've was all done a lot of cleaning of rooms. <laughs> when they're gone, we're like, okay, mom mode. But I found camping equipment down there and he's never camped. I found a bowling ball, which I knew he had bought because he bowled for about a month and then stopped. He, has an, he probably has $2,000 worth of pool equipment you know, cues. And, and he says, cause he, he tells me he's really good at pools. So he, you know, he just had to accumulate things and buy things. Uh, so that I, I think was symptomatic. All right. Anyway, you have more questions. I'm sure Savannah. No, it's, it's really interesting. Um, especially the kind of the buying things and the hoarding. And I think the thing with spending is, is what I found anyway, from my research, which isn't by any means, I'm not an expert, but it's around like a displacement and a dopamine hit that you get the same dopamine hit that you get from buying something online or from buying something in a store as much as you would do from doing something else um you know whether that's drugs whether yeah I don't know anything else but um it's equally followed by the same sense of guilt and this is something that leads into kind of that vicious cycle of money and mental health it's the kind of the need to replace something or fill something you fill it momentarily with buying something which gives you the serotonin and dopamine hit which is followed by the guilt which leads you to want to comfort spend and to constantly sort of fill in that that void and I think you know the what I find really interesting about finances in particular is the fact that it's not specific to any illness it's kind of it's so universal and so across the board um what I do actually what I am curious about is your take on financial victimization because I read somewhere that um 80 percent of transaction fees and penalty fees are paid paid by the 20 percent who don't have the means and the 20 percent who are mentally and financially vulnerable so at an institutional level I've been quite outraged about the general lack of understanding and acknowledgement about people who are vulnerable and how much they are being victimized. 
So I'm, I'm just why I didn't care a bit about the credit card companies, because when Jim is busy maxing out all these cards, some of which my husband paid back, and then the 50,001 that we didn't, they kept sending him credit cards. And then he would have all these late fees and everything else. And I got to the point where I thought, you know what, if they're going to send him knowing how they have to know how vulnerable he is, they are not stupid, they look at financial records, and each card they sent him got smaller and smaller. The last ones were like for $25, but they were still hoping he would spend that. And then they would, so they were preying upon him. And I um, am not surprised by your statistics. And I think there came a point where I just thought, I don't really care if he spends their money. He's not gonna have to pay it back because he's on food stamps and that protects him. Is there any way you can, tell them not to send that, you know, you know, Nick, um, there was a year where he kept getting uh, summonses to be on juries, jury summons. And, you know, I kept calling, calling, and finally I called it and I, I said, you know, I explained the situation. And I said, you know, he's never going to be on a jury. And um, the woman said, oh, you need to call the Office of Permanent Excuses. And I thought she was joking. The office of what? The office of permanent excuses. And I'm what? like, dude, this, is, this sounds interesting. Give me that. That is interesting. So I call this office and the woman literally answers the phone, office of permanent excuses. And I'm like, oh man, where's this been my whole life? And oh so my I gosh. What was going on? And she categorized Nick and it was all fine. And he's never gotten a jury summon since. And right before I hung up, she said, is there anything else I can help you with? And I'm like, hmm, can you help with other people? And she didn't quite get it, but I thought it was amusing. But I mean, I wonder if there's a way to do something financially where you can say, don't send this person credit cards. You know, there, there should be some sort of a measure that you can pay because I mean, you can get in a lot of trouble about it. I will say the minute we filed for bankruptcy, the offers came in fast and furious. And luckily, my son is is very happy just using his debit card, not a credit card. As long as he can do it on Amazon, he's fine. And this way, but you know, he must get two, seven or eight a week. You're pre-approved for a credit card. So. so Randy, when you said he got offers after filing for bankruptcy, were they like to consolidate his debt with them or what kind of offers? No, you know, you're pre-approved for this credit card. Oh, Let's for start Pete's again. Sakes. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. It's it's uh and, you know, and with of course before I declared bankruptcy, I paid off his Amazon. You know, and that's the thing, there's the burden on the family. He had a college fund only because of an inheritance from my parents. And that got spent on a troubled teen program in Idaho. And I'm not saying it was money not well spent. It gets spent on whatever care you can, because if you can afford it, then they expect the family to pay for it, even though that money could have gone for other things or maybe a down payment on a condo or something. But um, yeah, so yes, there is victimization. I will say emotion, not just credit card companies, but people. They're very vulnerable. I don't know about your sisters, Savannah, or you know, your stepmom, but people know uh, an easy mark when they mm -hmm. see it. And like your sons, you know, my, mine is generous. He loves to help people. It's part of his self-esteem to help mm -hmm. people. 
I remember his fifth hospitalization and he, there wasn't a lot of room. It was a state hospital, you know, but I brought him some shirts from Goodwill. He gave three of them away. Right. Because he wanted other people to have them. And Mm -hmm. that kind heartedness, my daughter's biggest fear for her brother is that someone will take advantage of him financially. Yeah. For us, it's a real fear. It happened. Yes. We have about 10 minutes left. So I want to make sure Savannah, you're getting to ask all the questions you want to ask. No, this has been great. I think we've, we've answered most of them, but there's a few more comments that I'd really like to make. It's, you know, talking about, you know, asking about can, are there not any controls that you can put in place to, you know, stops people from receiving credit cards or offers and that. And what I found really interesting is that loan defaults are built into financial models. So the credit agencies don't care actually how much debt you're taking on or your ability to repay or not, because they're making most of their profits off the people who can. And what often happens is they just sell the debtors book and then you get chased by these um, you know, these, these credit agencies who are just basically looking for debt. And if they get one person to repay the loan, then they're happy because that's a 300% profit essentially on what they're doing. So in terms of that, I think there needs to be a real shift in awareness just around vulnerable people. And I think we live in such a, you know, mindless consumerism age and a subscription age. And it's just the intangibility of money and how easy it is to actually get access to loan and to credit is, you know, I think the awareness piece is important. And I'm just thinking of an example um, from somebody else that I spoke to, and I won't mention any names, but um, she had a parent with, with schizophrenia and her mom would go into a store and just say, I'm going to buy everything on that wall. And it would be shoes of all sizes. And she'd come home and she'd be like, oh my goodness. And, and what actually happened in that family is one of the, the children um, took control of the finances and was the very much the bad cop. And she was there to sort of pick up the pieces. And when she went to take the returns to, to the small, small companies who knew the family, they just, you know, shrug their shoulders and be like, oh, sorry, we're a small business. Um, we, we won't do any returns, um, you know, come back again. And I think, I think it's that lack of care and lack of awareness that, that is really troubling especially given the light of how, you know, we're kind of living in a mental health pandemic and, and these are serious issues. Um, that, was, that was just the one, like the one comment I wanted to make. And the other, I guess my, my last question just on this topic is, you know, how easy it is you being chased down, you know, offering credit cards and that. And I'm just curious about the rise in e-commerce and how fast it is to transact online and how easy it is now. It's like, you know, it is completely intangible. And I wonder if that is impacting behaviors as much as anything else. And, and I don't know if you've seen any of that with, with your sons or with the people you've spoken to. Definitely. When Jim once had to spend down, you know, in order to qualify for benefits, you have to spend down. If you have too much money, he had like 2000 too much money because he hadn't been on SSDI. He was working full time and then he got really sick and had to spend down. He did that online in no time flat. He bought tons of things like black olives that were dried from Israel or something that we had for 20 years and finally threw away, you know, they weren't useful things, but boy, could he do it. And it was easy. Yeah. The convenience of online is, you know, yeah. When, when any, when, when there's any trigger, you know, if you're, if you're addicted to Oreos and you've got Oreos in the cabinet, look out. If there, you have to go to the supermarket to get it, it, it's going to be different. And I think 
uh, and this is no research that I've done, but I think absolutely you don't have to get in a car and go to the store and buy all the shoes on the wall. You can just open your computer and it comes to your doorstep. I do think that that has made a difference. Yeah. And I think it's equally interesting how easy it is to have to buy things and have them sent, but the reverse logistics are an absolute nightmare as well. So it makes it even more difficult to kind of recoup some of the costs if you want to return things because, yeah. Absolutely. I have to say my grandmother, my grandmother, so this was a long time ago. My mother always thought she had bipolar disorder, but she wasn't diagnosed. My other grandmother had schizophrenia and she was diagnosed. But the one that they thought, uh, she ordered all her things, not through e-commerce, but through catalogs, Sears catalogs. (laughs) And my grandfather had to return things. She ordered a piano. She didn't play the piano, et cetera. Returning a piano has got to be really tough. No, they kept that and later other kids played it. (laughs) But uh, there's always been ways to shop if you you have an illness. Yeah, I have... um, before we close in about five minutes, the last question I'm going to want to ask you are any tips and learnings that you had that you might be able to share with, with our listeners. But the question I want to ask you before that is how are you doing? You've got a lot on your plate. You've got yeah. a lot on your plate and, and just like, how is, what's it like to be you right now? It's a good question. And it's something I try not to think about too much, but um, <laughs> I think honestly, making the decision to get back in touch with my family and making the decision to really educate myself about some of the challenges have really helped me to separate the person from the illness and, you know, my siblings from their illnesses and being able to ask them questions and understand and know that actually it's not just my family who's experiencing this or it's not just my sisters who are making me feel this way. And actually understanding that there's a whole host of people out there who are in similar situations or worse or similar situations or better. And I think the best thing that I've done about with this research is by opening up because it's something that I've never, you know, I'm never ever one to sort of hold up my hand and say, this is what my family is. This is how we cope financially. And by me being vulnerable and, and just sharing my story with people, I've been shocked by how many people are in similar positions and who just want to help and help you know just share what they know and what helps them or share like their struggles and and I think what I found is because money and mental health are both incredibly stigmatized topics and nobody really talks about them but just seeing the desperation to just be open and honest and share some of the burdens with just anyone who can listen has been for on both sides I think incredibly helpful um I think understanding money as an and I, you know, I hate, I'm someone who hates talking about money and I, I seem to talk about it all the time now, <laughs> but um, the understanding that it's a mechanism and also having this insight that it's a means to an end, but equally it's something that you can do something about. It's not something that is, you know, out there where medicine is going to take 17 years plus to kind of catch up with, or we haven't advanced in what, like 50 years, but there's something in the financial space where there's actual practical things that can be done to help and it's those practical things that can remove a burden which acts as an additional external stressor so you know I really am of the mind like it's not going to solve all the problems but it's going to remove some of the strain if we can get something right okay Um, so what would be the tips that we would leave our listeners with (laughs) from from any of us I think communication. 
I would say learn about representative payees. If you're new to um, mental illness, learn about um, the fact that these credit card companies really don't care and they make money even if they're sending credit cards and that there's nothing you can do. You have to figure out what can you do and what can't you do. And then you cannot bang your head against the wall quite so much. I think I say, yeah. set, set boundaries with your loved one or loved ones and tell them what your boundaries are, what you are and are not willing to cover, what you are and are not willing to do. And I, stick to them if you can. Speak to other families in that situation. Get yeah, I think boundaries are very important. I think patience as well. I think I come back to the financial literacy piece where it's like very, very small steps in the right direction can have a very, very big impact with compounding. So I think the financial literacy and also educating yourself on safer means of borrowing or being able to offer solutions around borrowing or around finances that don't, that aren't risky options because there are many out there. Um, and I think the last bit of advice as well is if you have the opportunity to speak to your banks, there are spending controls and spending limits that they can put in before a crisis um, hits. And I think I'm quite excited about how the space is moving now in terms of starting to you know, find the link between money and mental health. And I think there'll be a lot more products coming out with a lot more empathy around people's individual financial situations. So that's my hope. Um, <laughs> but I think other than that is just patience. Um, and, and yeah, patience and kindness to yourselves and to your family. Um, but I think the boundaries and communication are equally important. They're important. Mimi's hand is up. And you know, I, I just want to mention about conservatorship. Go ahead. Yeah, I thought of something that I was going to implement with Nick and then at the last minute he decided he didn't want to do it. But I thought it is something that people could use. You know, they have these credit card. I see them on TV for kids where the kid does his chores and he gets credit on the credit card um, to earn money and it's controlled by the parents. I forget, there's a few different um, companies that do this. And that's what I was gonna do with Nick actually is um, get him one of those credit cards because it's set up for children, but it's set up to teach you financial literacy. And it was something that could be applied to somebody in this situation. Yeah, and just and on that, the the kind of you know the the I guess family friendly fintech and the cards and the co monitoring or carers cards. There's a few carers cards as well, which are you know quite advanced in terms of flexibility, but as well as setting controls. Um, there's three things that actually work incredibly well, just in terms of financial behaviors, and that's having accountability. So someone who you check in with before you make purchases, or just having an accountability to you know somebody you set up for yourself or a friend or family, whatever that is, a distraction and creating time. So if there's a way of putting in place measures that say, okay, I really want to have this purchase, but I'm just going to go and play a game for five minutes and then come back to it and decide. Um, time. So, you know, increasing the amount of time between spending. So something that I've been trying to use um, and I've been recommending people use is put everything that you want to buy in a week in a shopping basket that isn't essentials. And at the end of the week, review that list. And if you want to buy everything on the list, buy it all. But if there's some things on that list that you don't want to buy, then take them off. Um, and I think a lot of people who are using that find it really effective. Mm -hmm. um, 
but yeah, so that's, <laughs> you kind of jogged my brain. I was like, yes, actually, yeah. <laughs> a bunch of things that I think is quite effective. So. Those are awesome for any of us. You don't have to have a mental health issue to be addicted to shopping. So those are things that are really helpful. I've sometimes when I'm going through a store, I'll go, I, I want that. If I still want it tomorrow, I'll come back. And nine times out of 10, I don't. I will recommend if any of you are wondering about conservatorship, that we do have an episode on that. And it doesn't necessarily mean the Britney Spears, oh my God, I'm going to take over life and tell you what to eat for breakfast. Conservatorship of estate can simply be, you do have a say in how you can help your loved one manage their finances. It varies from state to state, but definitely take a look into that. I know for my son, every once in a while, he goes, why do I need a conservator? And I'm like, have I ever interfered with anything you don't want? I'm a safety net. And right now he, you know, he sees it as just the safety net that it is. And he's grateful for it. Uh, recently, we just had something this week where they thought he made a lot of money that he didn't make. And when I called the employer, it turns out one of their employees had put the wrong social security number. Her social security number had a seven where my son's had a one. And if I hadn't been conservator, I couldn't have taken care of that. So while we're here, we can help them legally if we have the right. So take a, a listen to the conservatorship episode if you're curious about that, or the one with Judge Lisa. She had a lot to say as well, and you can just check our episodes. Savannah, any, any last words? Otherwise, I'm just going to thank you so much. And please tell us, keep in touch with us. Tell us how your research is progressing and what you're learning, and if you have any questions, or you need three moms to talk to. We're right here. Absolutely. Thank you so much. This has been really wonderful. <laughs> Thank Perfect. you much. You had a lot of wisdom for us as well. And I appreciate it. <laughs> I hope so. I'm just a, an amateur researcher. <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah, you know, you're, you know, we each have daughters, so we, you know, our, our mother's hearts go out to you, but I'm just so admiring of how, of what the turning point you made for yourself, the decision you made to embrace your family as it is and do what you can. So from all of us in the U S to you in the UK, thank you again. It's been a pleasure. Hey, thanks for joining us for this episode of Schizophrenia, Three Moms in the Trenches with Randy Kay, Mindy Greiling, and Miriam Feldman. To get in touch with us or to learn more about our books, please visit our websites at miriam-feldman.com, mindygreiling.com, or randyk.com.